In today's Ticker Tapes episode, I'm talking to Dan, who, having lived with a heart condition since his mid-twenties, then experienced the biggest challenge of his life, undergoing heart transplant surgery at the age of 40. You just feel like really an immense kind of wave of gratitude and you want to express that as far as you can, but also it's a very emotional time. You think about the person who had to lose their life for you to have yours as well. So it's, it's a whole kind of cavalcade of emotions, I would say. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Rob Underwood. On the Ticker Tapes, we hear from people living with heart circulatory conditions. In this episode, Dan shares his emotions in facing such a life-changing event for him personally. He also talks about fulfilling long-held ambitions after his recovery, which included learning stand-up comedy. He wants to tell others that not only can you get your previous life back after a transplant, you can use it as inspiration to be much more than you were before. Dan, it's been an amazing journey for you, hasn't it? How does it feel to be able to share your story in this way? Yeah, Rob, it's been um it's been a real roller coaster over the last couple of years. It's um it's it's incredible to be able to share my story. Um, it's incredible to to be alive after considering where I was a couple of years ago. Um, so if anybody can um, draw anything from this story, anyone who's in a similar position, um, I would love them to listen to it. Yeah. So tell us some more about yourself, Dan. Work interests, family background, and what life was like for you before you started experiencing your heart issues. Okay, so um, so I'm from um, a town in the northeast of England called South Shields. Um, I apologise, I don't come with subtitles or a translator. <laughs> um, I grew up um, in South Shields. Um, my mother was a school dinner lady. She worked all sorts of part-time jobs to bring up myself and my sister on her own. Um, by trade, I'm a university lecturer. I lecture in film and media studies at the University of Sunderland. I enjoy football. I enjoy uh, keeping active. I've always gone to the gym, done various martial arts and the like. Um, so, yeah, I was a pretty active guy before um, before my heart problems started. Now, take me back then to when you first started having problems. So it was at the age of 27. And as I say, I was a pretty active guy. I was, at the time, um, going to the gym about four or five times a week, something like that, playing five-a-side football with my friends regularly, um, training various martial arts. I think I'd just taken up Thai boxing at the time. And also, I'd just moved down to Manchester, um now the weather in manchester um anyone who's been there will know that you can leave the house on a blazing hot sunny day and 10 minutes and you're drenched through so when i was in manchester i was constantly getting wet constantly picking up little colds and things i didn't usually think anything more of it i just assumed i would shrug it off like usual when i realized there was a bit of a problem was when i returned home to watch um a derby match sunland versus newcastle and then on the night time i just felt absolutely knocked for six with kind of flu-like symptoms. Uh, I went back home to um, to my mother's house in South Shields at the time. I was visiting from Manchester, as I say. And for the next few days, I could barely get out of bed. I don't think I was able to manage a full, a full walk to the end of the block by the end of that week. So it was about that point that I realized something was wrong. I went to see my GP. We tried various things, antibiotics and the like. And eventually he um, he decided that he wanted to refer me to the local hospital, the cardiologist. And... Um, Lo and behold, they put me through a number of tests, including um, angiograms, various blood tests. And I received the news that I had dilated cardiomyopathy. So an awful lot to take in there and process. I mean, 
it must have been a really anxious time for you, Dan. Absolutely. What do you remember was going through your mind? Uh, well, at the time, it was it, it didn't feel quite real. It wasn't something I'd ever factored into my kind of life trajectory. People have all kind of stereotypes, and I think I think those who don't have close family um, experience of heart disease will have a certain picture in their mind of what your typical heart disease sufferer looks like. Um, you would assume generally kind of that they'd be of a certain age, maybe pensioner, or if not, maybe they'd had problems with drugs, maybe they'd been obese or something like that. So it wasn't something I'd ever, ever seen as a potential danger for myself. Uh, I didn't have any of those lifestyle factors. But obviously, once you've experienced these things and once you've come into other contact, contact with other people with heart disease, you find out that it can strike absolutely anybody. So at the time, my main worry was I'm still a young man. You know, I'm 27 what does this mean for me? Am I going to have to basically give up everything that I enjoy doing? Am I going to have to give up socializing with my friends, going to nightclubs and pubs? Am I going to have to give up um, my training in the gym, martial arts, football, things like that? So uh, what you think of most of all is kind of the limitations that you're potentially going to encounter in life. I didn't think so much about mortality. I thought more about basically is this my life as I know it over. So a totally new condition for you to come to terms with what were those limitations? What did it mean for you? Um, first of all, the first thing to get used to was the medication that I was going to have to take. So I was put on, I think it was four or five different pills by the local hospital. Um, and I was going to be taking those indefinitely as far as I knew. Uh, straight away, I was told take about, I think it was, I believe it was about two months off the gym, something like that, about um, months, six weeks off of alcohol. So when when I first found out about those, obviously those those were really short term measures to start with. But what was going through my mind was, is, is this kind of a long term thing? I lost a quite a distressing to me a distressing amount of weight in the first uh, month because I, I couldn't really force down any other type of food but tomato soup. So apart from not feeling like myself, I also didn't quite look like myself when I looked at myself in the mirror. So you do start thinking of yourself as separate, as in. I'm I'm not quite in the same level as my friends anymore. It's a strange way to think about it, but you feel excluded. You wonder about these different things that you've enjoyed doing with your friendship group, your peer group before, and now you think, can I even partake in these things now? Am I going to have to find entirely new social circles as well? Where did you turn to for support at this time, Dan? Uh, well, obviously, there was my close family. Um, interestingly enough, my uncle had a heart transplant at the age of 40. Again, similarly, without without any real lifestyle factors as such, so he was able to give us some advice as to um, as to how he came to terms with things. My friendship group, as it existed, were massively supportive as well. I had, rightly or wrongly, I had a degree of embarrassment about telling my condition to them, but they couldn't have been they couldn't have been more supportive about it. So they were great. My new workmates again. I'd just moved down to Salford University, so I was quite new at the place, and I felt guilty about taking time off. Strange as it sounds again, like so early in my time down there, but my new workmates, um, a guy called Andy Willis and uh, a fellow called Chris Lee, were massively supportive with us. I couldn't, couldn't thank them enough mm. for it as well. Uh, so all of those people, the support group is integral. Anyone with heart disease who's gone through anything like this will will tell you how how vital a, a good support group is to, to getting you through it. So presumably you were subject to regular checkups, Moving along the timeline, when was the next major significant moment for you? 
So the next major significant thing, and again, I was able to pretty much get my life back on track with the medication. I was able to go back to a fairly active lifestyle, didn't really lose out on my social life. Uh, in 2016, however, um, I was undergoing regular checkups at the Freeman Hospital. From the results of my scans and blood tests, they decided that they would like to, to give me an implantable cardiac defibrillator in case anything, it was basically as a fail-safe. So in case I experienced any kind of arrhythmias, it's not something, even though I'd had heart disease for nearly 10 years at the time, it's not something I'd really kind of consider as quite real. But they wanted me to have this in case any of these things happened. So again, I was quite wary about this because I felt like I was going along all right, but I always follow my doctor's advice. So this is what I did. I got the imp implantable cardiac defibrillator. And for about a year or more, um, I lived just perfectly normal with it. There was a recovery period after the operation. And the first real sense I got, the first real moment it became tangible was one summer when I'd been to just a, an improv class, so nothing ultra energetic, just typical social activity. And after the class, I was walking down the street with um, my classmates, and I walked into a lamppost, except there wasn't a lamppost there. I continued walking. And again, same sort of feeling. And I realized this must be what it feels like to have the defibrillator go off. So I realized this was what was happening. It felt like being kicked in the chest by a horse, but from within. So I had to have a sit down uh, on the wall. My classmates basically sat with me until I was recovered. I went back, reported to the hospital, agreed to monitor it. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, the same thing happened again when I, after I'd had a day at the races. So this became... A much scarier time for me. Um, the defibrillator only goes off if you're having arrhythmias, if you're having irregular heart rhythms. So this was the time then the symptoms really became tangible and noticeable for me. I was, after this, put on a new course of medication, which managed it again for about six months or so. Again, I was able to bounce back, get back into the gym, get back to my normal lifestyle. Um, but then early 2019, my heart really started to um, struggle. I noticed just over a course of weeks, I went from, again, being very fit and active, going to the gym three or four times a week, to suddenly I was getting breathless, walking to the end of the block. When I was walking to work, I wasn't able to do my lectures usually. I, I had to, The walk to work would wear me out, so I had to sit down in class when I was lecturing instead of just stand up, move around gesticulate things like that just the slightest movements would would leave me breathless so again i knew there was there were problems here with the heart i went to see my consultants at freeman hospital uh they put me on a new course of medication a medication called succubital varsartan which actually turned out to be a bit of a wonder drug in at least alleviating the symptoms but in the meantime my doctor uh my consultant at freeman hospital dr mcdermott decided that he'd like me to also go for transplant assessment tests to consider my viability for a heart transplant. Let me stop you there. What's going through your mind when you hear that word transplant? Uh, massive, massive shock to the system. So even when I was first diagnosed with heart disease, it's a slightly different thing. When you hear heart transplantation, i.e. the idea that your heart has pretty much come to the end of the line, or it's potentially coming to the end of the line, it can no longer be managed by medication. That, again, becomes not just a case of lifestyle changes, but it becomes a question of mortality as well. You start to think, well, um, 
because we all, we all know even if you don't even if you're not familiar with the heart transplant operation you know that an operation like that is one of the most major surgeries you can have and it carries massive risks obviously there's the risk that you might not even make it through the surgery so at the time it was kind of a state of denial i would say there was the even though i'd been suffering these symptoms i thought of do I actually need this? Is there not a new drug that can sort me out, can keep me going, restabilize me for another five, 10 years or whatever? This seems like a drastic measure. But again, I trust the doctor's advice. So I went forward for the tests. So after I had the transplant assessment tests, I was feeling pretty well from this new drug, but the doctor with the scan said, you're going to need a heart transplant. We want you to, to join the routine list. One of the first things they tell you is that, um, the average life expectancy for a transplant patient is 10 to 15 years. So again, this is something that hit me like a ton of bricks because you go straight away from feeling like someone who's got your whole life ahead of you, you're planning out what you want to do in 10 years, what you're going to do in your retirement age, how you're going to spend your your, your old age, your friends, to suddenly um, having this kind of ticking clock. Mm. Um, and you think, wow, that's not a lot of time at all, 10, 15 years, that passes in a flash. So, um, so I joined the, the transplant assessment, the transplant waiting list for a routine transplant. I went home and uh, just went about my life until, um, until the next major, um, major upheaval. Which was what? So in 2020, uh, we obviously had the COVID lockdown period. That was a massive, massive uh, worry for me the whole COVID thing, uh, because you are constantly being bombarded at the start of the COVID period with the news that anyone who has any kind of vulnerability to their immune system, to their organs, to anything to do with the breathing or their internal functions is at massive, massive risk of this virus. Anyone who gets it, uh, who has these conditions is, um, is basically at risk of either death or life, life changing illness. Uh, so this, uh, that do kind of a, a kind of spiral of anxiety for me. Um, this first time in my life, I suffered panic attacks, which feel for anyone who knows who, who has experienced them feel very much like a heart attack. So, um, this idea of this, this whole experience of being stuck in the house without any regular doctor's checkups or hospital checkups, experiencing these things, which felt exactly similar to having heart arrhythmias to your heart not functioning properly was absolutely traumatic, terrifying. But I managed to eventually with the help of counseling and the help of my good friends and my support network, get through this this period, get back to really adapting. I found over the time that the, the period of my disease, I'm a very adaptable person. I managed to adapt my workout routine to uh, home workouts, calisthenics, um, Olympic rings, long walks. And I was eventually just getting, I'd, I'd settled into this terrible phrase, but we used it a lot of the time, this new normal. Um, until late 2020, late 2020, I was having a bath, just relaxing and Suddenly, I had, I recognized it, a shock from the defibrillator. I took half the bath water out with me, went to hospital that night, got checked over, got sent home when my heart rate restabilized. And the next night, the same thing happened again. And this went on as a vicious circle for the next few months. I was constantly in and out of hospital with these, um, these arrhythmias, these shocks from the defibrillator. And consequently, after that, because of the interference with the function of the heart and the ejection fraction, I was also experiencing buildups of fluid on the lung, um, shortness of breath. Again, constantly having to go in and out of hospital. I had two ablation surgeries in early 2021 to try and correct the arrhythmia problems. Neither of them really worked. 
neither of them did the trick. And in April 2021, I believe it was, um, the decision was taken to add me to the urgent transplant list and basically make bring me in as an inpatient in the Freeman Hospital to wait until the heart became available. The British Heart Foundation's life-saving research is giving hope to so many people. If you feel you'd like to support our work, do please consider a donation by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate pod. And now back to the conversation. So, Dan, a defining moment for you as you're now in hospital. You're waiting for a suitable heart to become available. This, of course, as you say, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, just how anxious a time is this for you? Describe, if you can, how you remember feeling. I mean, it's it's very anxious because uh, from from like pretty much 18 months of avoiding like all human contact outside my immediate family and uh and close friendship group in the outdoors suddenly i'm in a scenario where i'm having to share a, um a bay a single room in a hospital with a revolving cast of like five other men so you you worry you constantly worry you're being tested every day for covid but you worry what where's this person been has everyone here been kind of taking precautions on the outside or am I just suddenly going to be put into straight contact with somebody who's who's came in from kind of a full social life or something like that? So there's it's a very anxious period. I think it's I don't want to say it's uniquely anxious because the experience of waiting for a heart transplant for anybody is stressful. But with this whole COVID thing thrown into the mix and my particular anxiety around it, it's it's very worrying for me. It's very stressful. I did manage to settle into hospital life to an extent. Um, it was a three-month period waiting in there, so you do become institutionalized to a level. Uh, you start to look forward to certain menu choices in the in the hospital. Um, that's 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 <laughs> where my life got to. Um, so you do you do find your ways of coping with it. It was though it was very. Uh, I would say this. I, I hate to use this pun, but disheartening. It was disheartening after a time because you start to wonder: Is this heart ever coming? It feels like a very kind of dull, monotonous experience until the point where I was going along just normally after about three months, as I said, I'd become more or less institutionalized. You do suffer a lot with the lack of sleep. There's constantly alarms going off in the middle of the night, nurses rushing in and out of the, the bay because of the nature of the conditions that people are in. But um, apart from the lack of sleep, you eventually get used to it. But about three months in, suddenly my condition went off a cliff was after the first um, the first game in the Euro 2021 tournament. Um, I watched it. I've been looking forward to it for a few weeks, just something to vary the routine a bit. And after the game, my heart uh, rhythm started, started going berserk. Um, so they managed to stabilize it using my internal pacemaker and various medications. The next day, I was looking for, it had been a muse shock. I've been looking forward to... Um, to watching the football again, trying to unwind. And in that football match that I watched that very day, uh, Christian Eriksen, the Denmark player, um, dropped down with a heart attack in the no. middle of the pitch. So it wasn't wasn't quite the distraction I'd been looking for. Mm. Um, but my heart was no better. My heart continued to have these arrhythmias, continued to, um, to be in a, a very fast rhythm. I think it was at around 140 beats a minute. Uh, after a while, they stopped being able to 
to reset it using the defibrillator. So after a while, they had us on a constant drip. This this um, this drug to to kind of try and try and stabilize it as best as possible, but it never quite worked. So for about about a week or more, I was in constant heart arrhythmia. Eventually, the decision was taken to move me to intensive care and to uh, to put me on life support on this machine called an ECMO that essentially takes your blood in and out of the body, it saves your heart the work of doing that because clearly the heart's not working properly to do it. So it needs a machine to pump the blood for you. So I had this procedure. I was on life support. I couldn't move either leg. I was completely stabilized, um, completely sedentary. And again, apparently, I started picking up a lot of infections at this point. This is something that my mom and my sister told me in the, um, in the weeks afterwards because I, was, I couldn't take it all in because I was so whacked out on drugs. I was conscious the whole time. I basically spent my days watching classic Coronation Street of the <laughs> Jim McDonald wheelchair era and uh, and the Euro 2021 matches. But as I say, it was a pretty. I was a pretty grim sight to look at. I had wires coming out of every orifice. Um, I was strapped to the bed. I couldn't move either leg. Um, so yeah, it was. It it became a pretty, a pretty precarious situation at that point about whether a heart would actually arrive in time. But eventually, some positive news. Eventually, some positive news. Yes, it was on the eleventh um, day. The eleventh day that I was in life support on the ECMO machine, and I got the call in the morning. First call I'd had in hospital to say that they thought they might have a viable heart for me. Now you're you're const- it's constantly drilled into you when you're waiting that it's not real until the moment you're on the table. Something could go wrong at any point. They've got to check over the heart. They've got to get it transported from wherever it's came from. Find out it's viable. So. I didn't want anyone to speak about it to us after that first point. Like my mom, my sister came in. They were sort of, obviously they were smiling. But um, I said, look, nothing's happened yet. So please don't speak to me about it. Just let me watch a film. Let me take my mind off it. I'm not, as far as I'm concerned, nothing's happening until the moment I'm down there on the table. And thankfully, after watching two extended editions of Lord of the Rings to pass the time, um, finally I was on that table waiting for the operation to take place. What can you remember of the day, Dan? It actually passed quite quickly, considering how um, how long I'd wait for it. Um, when I went down to the operation, um, I remember the surgeons in there. I was very relaxed actually going down there. I know it it, it sounds unusual, but in my mind at that point, I was worried. My entire worry was that I'm going to die waiting for this heart. Like I was at that point, so. As far as I was concerned, at that point, the, the kind of risk of dying on the table, that wasn't a risk at all to me because it was absolutely needed at that point. It was vital that I get it. So I was quite relaxed going down there. The surgeons in there asked, did I, did I want any music on? Um, while they were doing the operation to relax, us, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to say no to music. I decided it probably wasn't best to have any of my aggressive gym playlist on there because I didn't know if that was suitable music for surgeons. Um, <laughs> So I decided to go for some uh, some nice kind of slow folk music instead. I went for Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, so Mrs. Robinson, I remember, was the last song that I heard with my my old heart. What's the next thing you remember? Waking up, um, I believe it was like a day or so later with my mom, my sister, and one of the intensive care nurses next to me saying, the operation's been a success. Uh, we couldn't have wished for a better heart for you. That was a big thing to hear um, because at that point it was kind of like you're getting so precarious now that we're going to have to accept like any heart that comes along for you. So it could be like an old person's heart or whatever. But this says we couldn't have wished for a better match for you. It's an absolutely perfect heart and it seems to have taken in well. 
So it was kind of really miraculous news, I thought. I can't begin to imagine, Dan, the feeling you must have been going through, the emotions and the conversation you must have been having with your family. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a lot to take, and I want to thank everyone, not just my family, but the nurses who kind of put up with us for so long, uh, my psychologist, Lucy Attenborough, in the, the hospital who got me through not just my time waiting in there, but also my time during COVID. So you just feel like really an immense kind of wave of gratitude and you want to express that as far as you can, but also it's a very emotional time. You think about the person who had to lose their life for you to have yours as well. So it's it's a whole kind of cavalcade of emotions, I would say. Yeah, so tell me more about your thoughts concerning the donor. And at what point did you feel you wanted to find out more about that person? So, I mean, I knew from even when I was waiting for it, I was aware of the process of people getting in touch with their donor family and stuff. And I always knew that whoever's heart I got, I would like to know about them. You get asked questions all the time. Do you feel like you have memories of that person? Do you feel like you've taken on any of them? And I can't say that have anybody else's memories but you do get a sense about the person i got the sense that this is this is a heart that's going from a very good person so i did i did want to find out but like obviously i wasn't going to rush anything i knew there's procedures about it um so i called up the hospital i think it was like about six weeks after i was discharged it was about the time when i thought it was fair to start asking um about my donor so i did ask um one of the, the transplant coordinators and they were able to tell me that the heart came from a 27 year old man. And how did that make you feel? I mean, it's obviously it's, it's massively humbling to know that you're alive because somebody had to, had to die at such a young age, but it's, well, there's the, there is that sadness there. There's also, it also kind of, I think it galvanizes you in terms of how you're going to live your life going forward. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd never kind of neglected my health before that, but even even more so, it wasn't so much about, uh, it was a given that I was going to take care of the heart. I was going to live a healthy lifestyle, but it was also about, I wanted to kind of live my life, the fullest life possible. I don't want to leave any, anything on the table because I want this person who lost their life at such a young age, I want to take them on like basically an adventure I want I want them to have all the experiences that they missed out on through me so it's kind of you're living your life not just for yourself at that point you're living your life for for that other person as well Dan talk to me about the road to recovery how did that all start and what did you experience along the way so yeah um so as grateful as you are to uh, to be alive you don't necessarily feel alive as such for the first um, the first period after the transplant. Uh, obviously, you're in massive pain for at least a month or so. Um, like you feel like you're being hit by a truck. A month after I came out of hospital, as an aside, I did actually catch COVID, which wasn't pleasant, especially after I'd been worried about it for so long. But it was a bit like having a sticking plaster ripped off. It was like I got that and I survived it. And then I was a lot less anxious about it. But the whole period left is uh, i mean for about six months you're very very fatigued so you don't have the energy to do anything much more than kind of get up um sit watching the tv for a few hours have an afternoon nap then get ready to go back to bed uh, my exercise was limited as well by the fact that i'd been on life support for so long that to go on this ECMO machine you have to have cannulas in your thigh and this had kind of mashed up my arteries in my leg a bit so i was getting constant cramps in my leg 
Um, so you had a very limited amount of time that you could walk before your legs started cramping very severely. So I felt very restricted in terms of that exercise so for about six months. Uh, but once I was able to start moving around again, once that pain gradually subsided, it's amazing how quickly the fitness comes back. And as soon as I started to get little kind of little green shoots and little lights that things are kind of coming back, it pushes you and it rejuvenates you to try even harder to push yourself as far as you can and to become as fit as you ever could. And how long was it before you felt back to your old self, if you like, and you were able to socialize, get out there and start really enjoying life as you'd have wished for? I think it was the best part of a year. Um, so I went away with some friends to Leeds in, I believe it was like May, but a year after the operation. And that was about the first time I saw that I could could survive the weekend out without feeling absolutely fatigued, shattered, having to go home after a couple hours. And at that point, I decided, um, right, well, there's no more time to lose. I've got no no excuses to be sat in the house any longer. So I booked something that I'd always wanted to do, which was a two-day stand-up comedy course at the Edinburgh Fringe for later that summer. I went and did that. That was a fantastic experience. And I've been uh, been doing stand-up comedy ever since. I just headlined a, a gig in Prague two weeks ago, which is a big, big goal that I set myself for the summer. So again, this is again about thinking about the things I always wanted to do, but always somehow found excuses not to do before the operation. And then again, this time around, I don't want to ever be at that position again when I'm kind of on me deathbed, as it were, thinking about all these things that I wanted to do, but I didn't get around to do it. Now there's no excuse at all for us. Tell me where you drew your material from then, Dan. So a lot of my a lot of my act is about my time in hospital and, and the, the nature of transplantation, I think. I don't know whether it's a uniquely British thing, but I think it's some of the best comedy out there comes from tragedy, comes from very serious subjects. And one of the best ways of dealing with tragedy and kind of taking the sting out of it is to um, to find ways to laugh at it, to find ways to kind of take that gravity out of it. Um, so I do that as a way of not just working through my own kind of experience with it, but also I hope to connect with with other people who have gone through similar things and also to, I suppose, bring a bit of awareness and bring a bit of light to, to people who, who don't know a lot about these kind of illnesses and to let them know, yeah, we're, we're human beings. Like you will find, we'll find absurdity in the same things. And waiting in hospital, living in hospital for that kind of time is, it's, it's an inherently ridiculous situation. You go through so many, so many silly experiences in there. And I think that's, that's what kept me going, kept me sane for so long, being able to laugh at the, the stupid things that you experience on a day-to-day basis in hospital. I'm thinking about those long days you spent in hospital, down the time you were on life support. Looking back, what have you learned about yourself and what would be the message to others facing a similar journey, would you say? I think it's, um, I think it's an experience that made me. Um, so at the time, it was something like you, you start to think about, why has this happened to me? Like, why has my life turned out this way? This is so limiting. Um, why can't I have been as, as lucky as my friends? Then afterwards, when you come out on the other side, you start to think, or and certainly in my case, I started to think, I, I wouldn't actually swap this experience for the world. seems like a strange thing to say, but I'd never been tested in that way in terms of finding out like what's inside you, finding out like how resilient you can actually be when you're put in that position. And also kind of the degree to which you can actually come back from it, the degree to which you can rebuild your life and kind of build your life up to be something even more than it was before that. Um, I mean, personally speaking, now I'm 
in the best shape I've ever been in. Um, I'm fitter than I've ever been. I'm doing things that I only dreamed about doing before the operation. And I certainly don't think that I would have got to any of these these levels. I don't think I would have had impetus to do it without that period of feeling like everything's been taken away from me. So I would say like, to anyone going through this situation, first of all, you absolutely can come back from it. Don't ever, don't ever feel like there's no hope. Don't ever feel like that. And secondly, as hard as it might be, try to look for the blessing in it. Try to look for the opportunity in it and think about what you can learn about yourself because you are going to learn a hell about, of a lot about yourself during this experience. Try to be strong. Try to pass the test. And you never know what's waiting for you on the other side. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing such an inspiring story with us. Thank you very much, Rob. Cheers. For over 60 years, the British Heart Foundation has pioneered decades of advances in heart transplant. From widening the donor pool to reducing the risk of rejection, we continue to fund research to support everyone who needs a new heart. For more information, visit our website at bhf.org.uk. Also, for any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health, and to talk to a cardiac nurse on the BHF's free heart helpline, just go to bhf.org.uk slash heart helpline. You'll find all the contact options there. Meanwhile, if you'd like to share your own heart story, or you have any thoughts on this episode, do contact us at the ticker tapes at bhf.org.uk.